this show is to get to the heart of well-being through inspirational stories of everyday people, expert insights from a number of health and lifestyle related disciplines, and exploration of topics that underpin well-being. If you want to take control of your well-being and put yourself front and center in your life, then this is the podcast for you. I want you to feel calm, nurtured and inspired so you can enjoy your life and your success. If you have not yet done so, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you know someone else that would get value from the show as well, please share it with them. Join me on this journey and let's live the fab life together. Today I'm delighted to introduce my expert guest, Dr. Susan Noonan, MD and author of two books about depression. Susan has treated many people and has personal experience in living with a mood disorder herself. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Bev. I'm so delighted to be here today. I have a unique perspective in several respects, both as a patient, as a physician in the United States outside Boston, Massachusetts area, as an author of two books on managing depression with a companion blog on my own website, as well as on Psychology Today and the Huffington Post, and I'm a certified peer specialist. I bridge that space between being a recipient and a provider of healthcare services. So I kind of see things from both sides, from both perspectives. I began my clinical practice in emergency medicine, which actually gave me the opportunity to treat patients with a variety of medical conditions, including many years counseling, treating, and advocating for patients with mental illness. But later on, I focused solely on mental health issues. As a physician who's treated, supported, and educated those living with and those caring for a person who has a mood disorder, such as depression or bipolar disorder, and as a person who has personal experience in living with depression, I have firsthand knowledge of what's most helpful that's backed by evidence-based medical information. So that's pretty much where I come from. And I guess that's quite unique in that perhaps a lot of uh, medical doctors haven't experienced the depression. So I guess they have a theoretical understanding of it. So how wonderfully compassionate for your patients that you actually have been on that journey yourself. So let's describe that journey, your journey with depression, so that listeners get to understand more about you. Okay, sure. I became an expert by experience when depression affected several members of my family and then myself. I began with my symptoms when I was a teenager that became then on and off throughout the years. And persistence and perseverance was really the hallmark of my life as I went through the rigors of school and medical training. Uh, For most of the time, my depression went untreated um, because that's the way things were done in my family. And you have to also realize it was many years ago. And it went untreated until I reached the age of 45. Since then, I've had a very, quite an extraordinary treatment team who held hope for me when I had absolutely none. It seemed then to make most sense to share what I had learned about the illness with others as my way of giving back. So my primary goal in writing is to bring depression management strategies to the many people who don't have access to medical mental health educational programs, who don't have adequate mental health care, or even the opportunity to learn these skills in any other way. And I guess many people who are close to us 
may have depression. So how can we support them? Well, that's a great question because a lot of times the person themselves is the last one to even know that they have depression. Family members and close friends are often the first ones to recognize some any subtle changes that uh, that occur. And the best way to provide support is to spend time listening without judging, to actually hear what the person says, and to acknowledge the emotions that he or she is experiencing, then respond with empathy to the words they're speaking. Those are not easy things to do, and it takes some practice to actually try that. You want to try to provide hope and realistic expectations for your family member. You know, you want to help them realize that the world is not over. In the middle of an episode of depression, they might have to take some temporary leave of absence from school or work and step back a little bit, not be as involved in what they're doing. And you want to be supportive of that. But then they can get back on track and get back to school or back to work or back to their interests and hobbies and things that they had been involved in. The other thing that's um, very helpful for one to do is to try not to promise anything that you cannot deliver. The worst thing is to set up an expectation and have somebody count on you and then not being able to do it or deliver it. That really is quite um, more than disappointing to someone who has experiencing depression. And lastly, don't be afraid to talk about suicidal thoughts with your family member. It's sometimes scary and you might be afraid that that might trigger them to think of those ideas, but in fact, it doesn't. It does not make that situation work it act worse. It actually might be helpful for them to get it out in the open and ask direct questions. Are you thinking of harming yourself? And ask the specifics of in what way do you have a plan? Things like that. And does that help us know the depth of the problem or how does that actually support that person? It does help the, to understand the depth of the problem and it helps to understand the urgency of the need for professional assistance. Because if somebody is having suicidal thoughts, that's considered a psychiatric emergency and one needs to receive treatment right away. One needs to call either their primary care physician if they have a mental health provider to call that person, if they don't have um, either one of those, you call emergency numbers like in our country, in the United States, it's 911 or just bring the person to an emergency department. Just drive them over yourself. Mm. And so what can one do then if you, you're living with somebody or they're in your immediate life and they refuse treatment for depression? So there's, you know, you've shown, you've listened, you've heard the emotion, you've responded responded with empathy, but someone actually refuses treatment for depression? That's a really good question. And it's a really hard situation to find yourself in. It's pretty common because if the person is over the age of 18, you really cannot force them into treatment unless they're in danger of harming themselves or someone else, or they're having unreal thoughts, what we call psychotic thoughts, where they're hearing things or seeing things that aren't really there. But what you have to remember is that depression is a biologically based condition that 
involves the mind and the body. And it affects our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, and our everyday lives. It often leads to some distortions in our thinking, which the person who has depression often doesn't recognize. So what you want to do is to try to understand what is behind the person's thinking for refusing treatment and try to address those issues. For example, somebody might refuse to accept treatment because he might believe it indicates he's a failure or it might make him feel more vulnerable and that it's intrusive to his life. He might be concerned about financial issues and being able to pay for the treatment or privacy issues and the fear of stigma if his friends or co-workers find out that he's receiving treatment. Sometimes some people may believe that treatment is just plain old not effective. It's something they might have read about on the internet. Or they might fear becoming dependent on medications or fear side effects that they've heard rumors about. And then lastly, they might fear that treatment might raise up strong emotions inside of themselves and they're fear, they're afraid of feeling those strong emotions. So what can you do? So the first thing you can do is just begin by reassure, reassuring the person that you love them and you're concerned for them. And just point out what concrete things you notice in the person that are different from their usual state, such as, gee... You know, I'm really concerned about you because you don't seem to be sleeping as well as usual or you seem to be more irritable or more down than usual, something like that. And tell them why you think it's important for him to see him or her to seek treatment. You could offer to help with the logistics of scheduling the appointments or traveling to the appointments by offering a ride or helping with, you know, um, subway or train train or bus transportation. And then you could offer very reliable information on mental illness, such as depression, because having information is a very powerful tool. Thinking about it will help to normalize things, yes, um, because person then begins to understand that it's a quote-unquote legitimate illness, just as a heart condition or asthma or any other type of physical medical problem might be. And the, one of the first ways to begin doing that is for people to talk about it and to understand that you can have the illness and people don't judge you for it and they don't criticize you for having it. You're not less of a person because you happen to have this illness that's something that's carried in your genes. There are different triggers for depression, which yes. can be of a chemical nature, but it could be event-driven. Yes. But nonetheless, what I'm hearing, Susan, is that there are signs and symptoms that somebody is struggling, and obviously, because we care about them, actually normalizing it by talking about it with them and helping them to seek the, the treatment that they need is the, the right thing to do. Yes, as long as you are an open-minded and supportive individual. We all know that there are some people in the world who are not in that category. And of course, that's not the person you want to have a conversation with. Okay, that's really true. So about being there. But I guess if you, let's say, if your life partner or somebody immediate in your family has a, a mood disorder of whatever kind, what's the importance then of caring for yourself Oh, it's really important because 
having a someone with a mood disorder in or other mental illness, in fact, in your family, um, takes a lot uh, out on the family dynamics. It's a lot to watch, to live with, and to handle, and it can lead to a mix of emotions and actual burnout in the partner or the caretaker. Then. If you experience burnout, you can't take care of anybody, including yourself. Burnout refers to the symptoms and the emotions you have from the stress of caring for someone. It's a sense of having reached the limits of your endurance and your ability to cope, having too many demands on your strength and your time and your energy. So when someone has in your family has depression, it's very time and energy consuming and you want to make sure that you pace yourself and that you take care of yourself and that you avoid burnout um, in your own self. And so to take care of yourself, it includes getting regular sleep, regular diet and exercise, keeping up with your own routines and schedule, your social contacts, the hobbies and pleasurable activities that you've had all along. Don't let those just get pushed by the wayside just because someone in your family has depression and don't feel guilty about it, about taking care of yourself. Go off for a walk on a nice day or go to the hairdressers or to a sports game or get a manicure or do whatever it is that bring, brings you pleasure and restores yourself so that then you have the energy to get back into the family dynamics with your family member who has depression so important that whole self-care notion isn't it you know yeah i mean if it's it's the whole thing of the oxygen mask you know pull the oxygen mask exactly. on yourself first <laughs> and then you can support others in the play <laughs> exactly and if somebody has, ta- you know, taken treatment for for depression, and their partner or their, you know, you, you may be the mother, because there seems to be a lot more teenage depression too, which maybe we can come back to. Okay. But how can you continue helping someone after they've recovered from depression? Well, one thing is you have to remember that while depression is treatable. It's a long-standing illness like high blood pressure or diabetes or asthma. It's an and reco- the concept of recovery is really an ongoing process that the person must pay attention to for many years. You don't just recover and stop. Your recovery is ongoing. It has some ups and downs to it. There'll be fluctuations. Sometimes the person might have another episode of depression and then be in remission from that. But it's not, oftentimes, it's not a one-time episode in most people. There's some statistics that show the number of people who have one episode who will go on to a second episode at some point in their lives. But you just need to understand that these episodes come in a random pattern that's unique to each person that could come months apart or years apart. And it's not meant to be discouraging, only to prepare the person that you have to be mindful of managing the illness all along. You just don't stop managing it. And you just don't stop being observant of relapse prevention steps. The best effort to help someone is to encourage the basics of mental health, which are the same as the basics of health in general in the most part, which is and encourage the person to keep 
periodic contact with their mental health treatment provider even when they're feeling well. Take medications as required and just not allow the depression to consume her, him or her. It's not what defines you. It's just something you happen to have. Yeah, and you know what? I like the analogy you're giving about blood pressure Mm -hmm. because blood pressure is also an unseen thing. Yes. And yet we are very happy to talk about taking blood pressure medication or managing our blood pressure through sleep, diet and exercise. And yet the conversation hasn't been normalized around mental health. So Mm. thank you. This is really, really good. And so I want to understand, Susan, in your view, what is the role of sleep then in recovering from depression? Sleep is critical. Sleep is considered one of the basics of mental health, along with nutrition and exercise and keeping a routine. And sleep is important because sound sleep optimizes brain function. And it has a very positive effect on your mood disorder, whether it's depression or bipolar disorder, which has a depression component to it. A change in the amount of sleep or the quality of your sleep will affect your illness most definitely. For example, if you have periods of insufficient amount of sleep or poor quality of sleep, um, like you have, you keep on awakening in the middle of the night or you wake up way too early in the morning, earlier than you need to, that can worsen a person's depression or bring on their bipolar illness. A very, in contrast, a very consistent pattern of good quality sleep can very much help improve a person's mood. With quality sleep, it's also some of the same factors, you know, about having a routine, sleeping to a schedule, Mm -hmm. you know, having the right amount of exercise. So they all feed one another. So it's your total well-being that we're talking about too. Yeah. So that's that's really great. I just want to say one more thing about sleep. It's, It's a myth to think that you can catch up on your sleep. There are a lot of people, especially young people, who think that can stay up late at night watching television or going out with their friends and then sleep late on the weekends, sleep till 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock noontime and catch up on their sleep that they lost in the middle of the week. And that's a myth. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. You need to keep to a schedule where you, you keep the same amount. Of, I mean, certainly you can have some for special events, some, you know, differences but um you need to keep the same same schedule of going to bed at the same time every night waking up at the same time every morning seven days a week yeah i'm with you on that that's what i promote and and actually teach my clients because then, then the body biology knows exactly what to do the body knows best how to actually get you into that sleepy state and and sleep for the required amount of time as well as get the quality right Yes. You know, there's just so much talk about teenage suicide, and I guess that has come as a result of untreated depression. Mm-hmm. And so, for those, they may be parents of teenagers or have teenagers in their lives. Are the signs and symptoms of depression similar or? Are there other signs? Because I had a young son who was diagnosed with depression at the age of 11. So he was Mm pre-teens and, you know, he just really didn't want to to do the treatment once he got into his formal teenage years. And he still did, you know, really battle with that. And 
I know that he saw it as a stigma because he's, he was different to his friends. So yes. is there any differences there, Susan, with, with teenagers? Well, teenagers tend to react in a different way from adults in several respects. They tend to be more withdrawn and they t- you tend to see a an, an difference in their daily habits. You might find that their grades at school are dropping. You might find them to have an, a different set of friends from the friends they had been hanging around with prior to their depression. And maybe you don't like this new group of friends. Maybe they're the troubled kids at school. They, they tend to be more irritable when they're depressed because they can't make sense of what's going on in their mind. And one of the ways they express themselves is with irritability. They express their sadness. Oftentimes, they turn towards street drugs and alcohol, even in, in the young, very young teens. And that's a warning sign for sure. And um, certainly, teenagers or any person you need to be concerned about as far as suicide, because suicide is usually considered an impulsive action in a troubled person who sees no way to change their painful circumstances. They see no way out. They can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And as we know, adolescents are very impulsive anyway. So you really need to try and be aware of that and understand that they're not going to want to open up, certainly not to a parent. They might have a better rapport with a school counselor, maybe with uh, a primary care physician who can then recommend a mental health counselor to them. But it's, it's it's a big struggle in many families to try and get through and communicate um, because they tend to build a wall and just back off. But those are very um, serious things to have to be on the lookout for. And they're a little bit different from um, the adult population. I know that one of the things that really supported my son was to have a mentor from outside of our sort of nuclear family. Mm-hmm. So I'd recommend to any listeners who've got children who are, are dealing with mood disorders is to ensure they have, you know, another person in their lives. It's a very good idea. Yes, it's a very good idea. We've had such valuable information today, Susan. Thank you so much. And would you like to tell me a little bit about your latest book, When Someone You Know Has Depression? Certainly. Thank you. Um, This book is written um, directly for the family members and close friends uh, of someone who has depression or bipolar disorder as a very concise and practical guide to caring for someone with those illnesses. It's drawn from personal experience as a patient and as a physician, backed by some evidence-based medical information, and offers a lot of effective communication and support strategies that are useful in daily interactions. It includes uh, some sections on what to look out for, how to find professional help, the basics of mental health, and also how to take care of you, take care of yourself, you the caretaker. It's important because, as I said earlier, family members are usually the first ones to recognize the subtle changes of depression, that something's not quite right, and they're usually the ones providing daily support. So you may pick up on things far sooner than a a family doctor would, or even a a teacher perhaps who's, you know, working with your child in school. 
Uh, but given that, many family members feel pretty powerless to know what steps to take in response or what to say or do in response to somebody's impaired thinking or their behaviors. So my goal was to help to bring helpful strategies to individuals dealing with this disabling illness in a friend or a family member. Fantastic. And Susan, what are your tips for living fabulously? Hmm, good question. Thank you. I would say balance and organization, for me anyway, personally. I find it important to have a balance of things in my life. Balance of work, of family life and friends, physical exercise and relaxation. Things to stimulate my mind, a healthy diet and nutrition, music, some connection with the outdoors and nature. And I learned that I do better with a fair degree of organization in my life, not being obsessive about it, but, you know, kind of being organized and keeping a routine and, and fairly flexible structure to my day, just so that I don't have endless hours of empty time that just get whittled away. And then I feel like I haven't accomplished what I would like to. Thank you. That's fabulous. And you can find Dr. Susan Noonan at her website. It's Susan Noonan, N-O-O-N-A-N-M-D.com. Susan, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. And I just love that we've had a conversation that hopefully will start to normalize that we talk about mental health, just like we talk about any part of the body's health. And I think the analogy we've used around blood pressure and ongoing maintenance of blood pressure is such a relevant one because you know everyone's happy to talk about that but my takeaways were the the way that we respond to somebody in uh, in the first instance was to listen without judging to hear the emotion that they're bringing forward and to respond with empathy and be able to ask direct questions so that we can also support them better, but then also to actually take care of ourselves. And the things that you spoke about there were the everyday things that anybody, even when they're caring for somebody or not, should be doing. But it's just as important when you're dealing with any type of caretaking, whether it's someone with a mental health issue or someone with a chronic illness, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to take care of yourself. So thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Bev. Thank you so much for listening. And I would love to know what you enjoyed most about this episode. You can connect with me on Facebook by searching for Living Fabulously with Bev or feel welcome to leave a message or comment on my website. You can get the links and any references from this episode in the show notes at my website, www.livingfabulously.com forward slash podcasts. Do you have a friend who you think deserves to live fabulously? Spread the love around by sharing the podcast with them right now. Until next time, be sure to live the fab life. The information shared here and in our programs and webinars should not be seen as medical advice and is not meant to take the place of seeing licensed health professionals.